everything changed when I did the screening on a 12-year-old girl. And all the testing and the screening was showing positive, 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 positive. And so I said to her, did you sleep well last night? She goes, yeah, I slept well. And I said, what are your stress levels on a scale of 1 to 10? And she didn't respond. She just put her head down. And then the mom was sitting behind me and she started crying. The mom. And, and I said, are you okay? And she goes, how did you know to ask those questions? And I explained to her, I implemented the screening strategy. And then she turned to her daughter and said, do you mind if I tell him what happened? He might be able to help us. So the mom proceeded to tell me that she found the note that the daughter was going to leave after she ended it. This is the Beats Working Show. We're on a mission to redeem work, the word, the place, and the way. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Join us at Winning the Game of Work. Welcome to Beats Working. On the show today, turning personal challenges into your calling. Maybe you've heard the old saying, the eyes are the window to the soul. Well, today's guest, Dr. Stel Nikolakakis, is proving the eyes are actually the window to your brain. That's what he was talking about in the clip you just heard when he examined the eyes of a 12-year-old girl who the night before considered taking her own life. He could tell something was wrong just by examining her eyes. Dr. Nick, as his patients call him, knew he wanted to be an optometrist as a teenager. But it wasn't until he was married and had a son with special needs that he found his true calling. Dr. Nick is a neurovisual optometrist. It's a field that studies the connection between the eyes and the brain to diagnose and treat a range of disorders like learning disabilities, post-traumatic stress, concussion, and others. Dr. Nick's son, Gabriel, has cerebral palsy and through vision therapy has made remarkable gains in his abilities and quality of life. Instead of seeing Gabriel's challenges as a setback, Dr. Nick sees them as the setup to a career dedicated to helping others. Well, Dr. Nick, it's great to have you on the Beats Working Podcast. As I've been doing some research to get ready for this, I've just been so intrigued, not only by your life story, but but by your life's work now. And uh, so let's start at the beginning. I think it's absolutely amazing that as a kid, you wanted to become an optometrist. Um, what was it that drew you to that profession? What was it as a kid that you saw that made you think, well, man, this is pretty cool? Um, yeah, first of all, thanks for, for having me on, on the podcast. And um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I've always wanted to help people. Like that was just innate in me since I was a kid. And uh, I thought it was going to be some type of sports therapy or, or sports medicine. Um, you know, so chiropractic was sort of the first thing I was looking at. But then I was the only one in my family that wore glasses. So, you know, going to the optometrist year after year, he always kept me interested and would show me cool, cool things every time I went in. Um, and then it was about grade 10. I thought to myself, wow, this guy, you know, speaks to people all day long, helps people all day long, sits in a dark room. And, and, uh, and I thought, this seems like a cool profession. I asked him what he thought of it. And obviously he said it's the best profession in the world. And I made the decision, stuck to it, and um, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that as a kid, you know, regular optometry, you're diagnosing, you know, people's, you know, eyes, right? And you're helping them see better. But what you got into through your life story goes so much deeper than that. And I think it's just a fascinating 
thing to talk about. Let's let's talk about your superpower now. When people ask you what you do, you say I change lives through vision, and specifically through a process, one of them called neurovisual optometry. So let's start there. I'm I'm just kind of blown away that at the heart of this, this discipline, there's there's a connection between our brain and our eyes that allows you to diagnose issues with the brain by examining the eyes and then treat those disorders by treating the eyes. And I just, this is so just amazing, such something that I had no idea even existed. For the average person, Dr. Nick, explain exactly what neurovisual optometry is. Well, it's, again, it's, uh, I didn't even know it existed because uh, we didn't even have it as part of our curriculum in, in at uh, the University of Waterloo School of Optometry. We had uh, a portion called binocular vision, in other words, how the eyes work together, move, how we focus, basically the, the, the hardware of the visual system. Um, and then it wasn't until a colleague came to my house and saw, because my youngest son has cerebral palsy, and he saw the way that his body was positioned, and he mentioned that he, we can help him with vision therapy. And I'm thinking, what does the body have to do with the eyes and the brain? Same question that you just asked me. And he tried to explain to me, and I didn't really understand so I did my own research because I have a vested interest now in anything that can support my child. Why not? Um, and then I ended up going to the U.S. to learn uh, to learn uh, more ab- about it. Um, you know, and just to keep it simple for now, yeah. um, we don't see with our eyes. Okay, we see with our brains through our eyes, and the same thing. We don't hear with our ears. Okay, so we it's 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 how the information is coming into our brain, how our brain processes it. And then how that then manufactures what we call movement. So, you know, if we think about the eyeballs as an extension of the brain, which it is, because the retina is brain tissue. Um, And then we think of how does that information get into the brain for the brain to process the information? That's actually what vision therapy is. Hmm. So, you know, one of the things I hear all the time is, you know, do you help kids with learning uh, disabilities and do you help them read? It's no, we don't help them with the dyslexia. What we help them with is with any inefficiency in the visual skills that may be inefficient for them to read, right? And and the percentage of that happening is high. I think it's 25, 30%. I think it's a low stat. Um, but there's, you know, 25% of every classroom has, you know, difficulty reading or dyslexia wow. that can be vision related. Um, you know, so that's basically like vision therapy is basically how, do, how does the visual process work uh, neurologically? So most of what's in our brains comes through our eyes, right? Yes and no. Uh, so we, we say that the brain is 80% visual. Hmm. Okay, now, you know, when I say visual, most people think it means what they see. Hmm. It's not necessarily what we see. It's how the visual processing happens neurologically. So what do I mean by that? When we experience something, Okay, so we experience something, yes, we see it, okay, and we hear it, and sometimes we can feel it. So all this information comes into the brain, and then the brain pieces all that information, and then that's where the processing actually occurs to make or to understand what it means. Hmm. What, is it, what is it that it's taking in? How do we put meaning to it? Okay, so how do we derive that meaning? And then the brain then manufactures an action based on how it's driving this meaning that's happening, which is what we call the visual processing. So, you know, I could say to you, think of a bell, and the first thing that may come to you is I can hear it. 
hmm. right? Because you're an auditory processor. It's still visual processing in the way that you're taking in the information about thinking about how that bell works neurologically in the brain, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I mean, it, it, understanding that there's that much of the neurology that is visual and how we can tap into the visual system and basically tap into the brain, look for any inefficiencies and then improve those efficiencies so somebody can experience life differently, hopefully mm-hmm. better, but differently. So let's talk more about your son, Gabriel, who has cerebral palsy. What was it like um, when you first started to understand that, wow, maybe I can help Gabriel with this new therapy? Take me, take me through that process of where it started and, and just how he benefited from your understanding of this, this science. Yeah, so um, just a little history on him. So we were, we were pregnant with uh, our second and third child, so they were twins. And then at the 20-week uh, ultrasound is when we found out that Michael um, wasn't going to make it to birth because he had a, a, a heart condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, 26, about 25 weeks um, into the pregnancy is where, um, you know, we thought, okay, they're coming. And we had um, one scare. Actually, it was a couple of them. And then finally, we're, we're giving birth. Uh, Fabi was giving birth to uh, both of them. Five days before Gabriel was born, uh, Michael passed away, and then um, and then Gabriel was born at 26 weeks and, and one day. So we called the uh, neonative intensive care unit at the hospital home for the next 146 days, and that's where the you know the journey began with him. Um, you know, all auditory testing showed that he was uh, severely and profoundly uh, impacted in 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 hearing. So at that point, they told us he's not going to hear, he's not going to see, he's not going to walk, he's not going to talk, he's going to be in diapers his whole life. I mean, every possible prognosis, poor prognosis was there. Um, you know, I'm not the type to listen to prognoses like that. I, you know, covered my wife's ears and said, don't listen to anything they're saying right now. Just be present and then allow everything to unfold the way that it, it, it was going to. Two years, um, you know, when he was two years old, um, is when he it was confirmed the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. So there was a lot of you know tests that happened at the time. And one of the doctors said to me, you know, one day you'll understand why you had to go through this. And I mean, I wanted to kill him at that point, thinking that nobody should have to go through this. But looking back to where I am now, because you mentioned, you know, all of a sudden my purpose is starting to show up. I get it, because what is what was one of the most difficult times in my life and in my story. Um, ended up leading me in a direction of, of possibility. So, um, and the other amazing thing is the people that are showing up in my life and in our lives and the family's lives have been just incredible. Um, one of them is a woman named Annette Beniel, Um and Judy Dack is a therapist of the Annette Beniel Therapy in Toronto. And I'm pretty sure that's the therapy that supported him with his auditory processing because, uh, you know, Gabriel can hear perfectly well and he could back, back then. Um, and the docs don't understand why, right? So how is it that his auditory system is hearing now? And he had, you know, still profound and, and severe hearing loss. And the uh, Annette Bagnell therapy is basically slow movements in order to then create neuroplasticity in the brain. So slow movements in the body. Um, and then, you know, I started learning about all these alternative therapies. That led me to understand our alternative therapy called vision therapy. Um, because Gabriel had probably the second highest prescription I've seen in my career, uh, an eye turn, right? Uh, an, an eye turn and a lazy eye. So his, his one eye um, wasn't seen clearly at all. Uh, at all. 
Um, you know, now his eyes are, you know, he hears well, perfectly straight, no prescription, and he has 20-20 vision in each eye. So, wow. you know, to, to, to prove why it happens, I don't really understand, but something obviously neurologically shifted. Um, you know, you'll hear the term neuroplasticity a lot these days. It's a, it's a, it's a, a word that uh, pops up a lot. It's real. Um, and, you know, we, we know that the brain is plastic and it can get trained in ways to support the potential of, in this case, his visual system. But, I mean, ultimately the potential of, of the individual, right? So when I look at Gabriel, I don't see the disability. I see what the possibility is. And the gift that he gave me is everybody that I meet, I see the possibility. I don't see the disability. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's a continuum, right? So everything's with respect to where that person has in terms of their ultimate potential, um, which again, we'll probably talk about it later, but it led to my purpose and what I do now. And, you know, I love the name of the podcast beats working because I don't work anymore. I, th- <laughs> this isn't work to me, right? It's a passion. It's, it's, uh, you know, impact making a difference in the world. And now I'm grateful that I get opportunities like this to share it. Um, because a lot of people really don't know what it is. And, uh, you know, vision therapy, a lot of the work that I do, even on the, um, on the, um, emotional intelligence side of, of coaching that I do as well. Mm-hmm. So I hope I answered the question. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so I'm guessing you're not one of those doctors that says what you won't be able to do in the next X number of months or years of your life. You're one of those docs that says, okay, let's take a look at what we can do and what we can develop, right? Yeah, always. It's, um, yeah, I, I, again, you know, even you said it, like, I'm sorry and thank you. Um, but I always tell people it's the best thing that happened to me. Or I shouldn't say that. It's the best thing that happened for me, huh. right? And if I were to do anything all over again, I wouldn't change a thing, okay? And in terms of, you know, yes, I'm trained medically as an optometrist, so we're trained to look for problems. I mean, that's our number one thing is, is there an issue, um, uh, whether it's neurological or visual or, you know, in terms of the, the eyeball that we need to look at, first and foremost, um, but everything changed for me in terms of looking at what is it that we can work on? Because there's, okay, so there's three main patients that we see. Number one are kids with learning issues, two concussion patients, and three high-level athletes, right? And to me, there's no real difference because if we look at it from a continuum of potential, then the high-level athlete is going from, you know, being amazing at his craft or her being amazing at a craft to next level, Right. If we have a child with a learning disability, instead of focusing on the learning disability, what is it that we can focus on that makes them a unique and then work on the uniqueness to support them and give them visual access that then allow them to improve um, in terms of what they want, whether it's in life or whether it's, um, you know, in school. Most of the time I'll ask parents, what's the goal that you want to get out of vision training? The number one answer is I want them to get better marks. Right. If I ask the child what they want, you know, what do they want to improve on in vision training? It's like, I want to be a better hockey player. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and we do both, hopefully. Right. I love it. I love it. So let's talk a little bit more about exactly how you diagnose and then treat through vision therapy. Um, And I know that I've I've listened to some of your work with other podcasters who happen to be doctors. (laughs) That was a pretty high level discussion and really interesting. But for everyday people like like me. Uh, who really don't have a medical background, like give us an idea of, of like, let's take a learning disorder or something mm-hmm. like that and how you diagnose it by examining the eyes and then and then how you treat that. Okay, so I'll, I'll give examples as I go along. Mm-hmm. 
and then feel free to ask questions. Uh, you know, if 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 we need to put more detail on on the conversation. So, mm-hmm. when you get a regular eye exam, okay, so you go in, you know what it's like. You know, you see the optometrist or ophthalmologist. Then you know we take a look and we we check. Is there a prescription and how well can you see? Whether it's glasses for distance or prescription for up close or both. The second thing that we look at is to make sure that the eyes are moving and they're, they're, they're functioning in a way that's supporting to have single clear vision, right? That's the ideal. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that we look at is the health. Okay, so we look and make sure that everything's nice and healthy back there. There's no glaucoma, there's no macular degeneration, there's no actual, actual active disease. Um, when we do a neurovisual evaluation, what we do is, is look at almost like a 21 point checklist and it's like taking your car to the mechanic. Okay. So we look at those points and say, okay, do they fall within ranges in terms of what the brain needs in order to utilize visual information and then process it? So this is how I explain it to parents to make it simple. We have a hardware of the visual system, and then we have a software of the visual system. What's the hardware? When we look at print, our eyes need to point roughly where the print is. It needs to focus on where the print is, Mm -hmm. right? They need to focus on the print, and the eyes need to move together as it's moving through the print. Okay, so the hardware system, if it functions effectively, we have the capacity now to try to understand what it is that we're reading, okay? Mm-hmm. If one or more of those systems is off or inefficient, then the brain is busy trying to keep it aligned up or trying to stay focused or trying to move through space in those words. Because it's so busy doing that, one of the main, main things that happens with kids with learning issues is a decrease in comprehension. Right, because the brain's doing something else, right? It's busy doing other things. Wow. So if you ask that child to a question with regards to what they read, they have no clue, okay? <laughs> the other thing that, you know, in terms of behavior, so we're looking at how is that child behaving when they're reading. If the eyes have a difficult time moving from word to word to word, what's the first thing that you'll see? They track with their finger, mm-hmm. right? right? So they compensate in ways to then... Um, compensate for the inefficiency if the if the eyes aren't focusing properly it's like if you take a camera blurry clear blurry clear so most of not when you have a child that has 20 20 vision it's not that they can't see they can see 20 20 but there's so many things that are inefficient that the brain just can't take in the information the way that it needs to and what you'll hear is they reread the words uh, the comprehension goes down I see double right? Because the, right? I see blurry. It comes in and out of focus, Hmm. right? And then that's what creates the reading difficulty. But actually what the issue is, is the hardware of the visual system is off. Okay. So that's part one. Part two. Now I mentioned there's the hardware and there's the software. So the software part of the system is once the information does go into the brain, how does the brain process the information to make sense of it? Okay. So there's different types of what we call perceptual testing that we do so that we you know one for example is can the brain visually remember what it saw 
Okay, so think of photographic memory, right? If somebody has photographic memory, it's etched into the brain and they can recall it and see it and spit it out at exams. They can do everything you want. But what's the opposite look like? If that information goes to the brain and there's like no snapshot or it's like seconds of snapshot and I'm trying to recall what it's like, what did I see? So if I can't process the information, what do I do? Go back and read it again, right? And then again, slow reading speed, slow understanding, slow. And there's seven levels of perceptual testing that we do to figure out in this 21-point checklist, where are the inefficiencies? Once we gather those inefficiencies, it deepens our history to the parents and the child. But then we ask specific questions that are targeted to what we see in terms of the inefficiency to confirm is this actually what's happening? Guess what we hear 99.9% of the time? What? Wow, somebody's explaining what we're noticing in behavior. Wow, somebody's listening to me. If you're the one that's... Mm. You mean, and this is a key one that we... like. When I heard this the first time, it, ugh, when a kid says, Mom, do you mean I'm not stupid? Yeah. Are you okay. kidding me? When I heard that the first time, I thought, oh my God, there's no way. And then... I, again, it, I said to my team, I don't want any child coming in here that doesn't get a screening so that we can at least, you know, use a two-minute uh, standardized screening screening test to ask the questions to figure out do we have any inefficiencies in that system. Yeah. But those are the, the two main, you know, there's subsets of each one, but those are the two main descriptors that I give parents so that they can understand the hardware, the software, how does the brain process, and where, where can we look for those inefficiencies. Oh my gosh. And you just go a generation or two back. And, you know, like my dad, I'm sure had a severe learning disability, but he was just called stupid. Um, you know, and he was extremely successful in his life when he was alive, you know, brilliant salesman. Uh, but he couldn't spell, he couldn't, you know, he'd have somebody else write the letters for him, you know, in the office. And, but he was, you know, he literally was, was, was called slow and stupid. And it was, there's nothing further from the truth. It's just like, wow. It's so eye-opening, yeah. all this stuff. It, it's it's um, what I. <laughs> it's funny because there's two directions that the child can go. One is to give up, yeah. Okay, or the opposite is to push through it, and then they learn strategies that the other kids don't have. Yeah. And they tend to be the smartest kids in the class, and they tend to be the entrepreneurs and the successful mm-hmm. ones. Richard Branson, an example of this. It's, yeah. I mean, I could, we can label yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs. And one of the key things that you hear all the time is, you know, a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that had reading or um, reading difficulties or dyslexia will say, yeah. I was diagnosed with ADD. Hmm. Common one. Um, and, you know, again, another statistic I heard as I was going through my learning is that 80% of vision-related learning issues are exactly the same symptoms as ADD. So instead of a prescription, they're getting some sort of drug from a doctor and take this drug and there you go. Yeah. And it, wow. look, I'm, I'm an end guy. Okay. So yeah, if, yeah. if we need medications or we need allopathic, you know, we need that support, we get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. But here's now an opening where I can learn about how we can actually diagnose the vision related components that may be attributing to their ADD diagnosis. And one of the things I'm, I've never been big on is labels. Um, and the reason is it doesn't allow you to go deep. You know, they're great for, they have a purpose, but you can't go deep into the actual underlying root causes of what the problem might be, right? So 
you know, and, um, you know, just to give you a, a little bit of understanding in terms of, you know, leaders that I work with now. And it's, it blows my mind how many of them have vision issues that we discuss. And here I am coming in as an optometrist, their coach, but as an optometrist to try and explain what the visual system is. So when you have an overly attentive individual, okay, because attention deficit is a bit of a misnomer. It's, it's mm-hmm. over-attention. Ah. Now, what happens to the visual system when there's what we call a sympathetic overdrive? Mm-hmm. So there's a, a fight-or-flight response that's firing all the time. There's three main characteristics, well, there's more, but the three characteristics that I'll mention now is the brain is going into a fight or flight response. And the example I give people, it's like a a lion's chasing you. Okay. If there's a lion chasing you, you're not going to read a book (laughs) and your brain is going to say, Hey, eyeballs, go out there because we need to know where we're going. Don't focus on the book. Take the focusing, throw that out there too. Okay. And disregard the visual information in the peripheral awareness Okay, so that all you're left with is an exit sign so that you know, get the hell out of here. Okay, yeah. if neurologically that process is firing all the time, you have to attend to noise and movement. It's a safety mechanism. It's a survival mechanism. So what happens now if I'm hyperattentive in one area and there's any movement or loud noises, squirrel, 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 squirrel. Right, right. Okay, and then I'm overattentive on everything and I can't, I can't focus on anything in particular. The other thing is, if my visual system is collapsed, okay, and I'm disregarding all, all information in my periphery, I don't know where my body is in space. Hmm. So what do I need to do? Tap my body, move, walk around. So you'll hear a lot of kids need to move in mm-hmm. classrooms to learn because yeah. they know where they are in space. Yeah. So you'll hear that we're clumsy. I tend to you know, um, you know, walk over curbs that I didn't see that was there before. Mm-hmm. But again, think of it now from a reading standpoint. So I'll go back to the learning disability. If I'm hyper-constricted, what does it sound like when I read? I can only see one word at a, and the, at a time because I just skipped a line. Yeah. Okay? And then that's why you'll hear, um, you know, people saying, I'd rather listen to audiobooks or audible, mm-hmm. right? I learn more if I, if I can hear it. Well, it tells me usually that there's a visual inefficiency and they can't take wow. in the information through the eyes. Wow. Did you see that? Yeah, that's crazy. So let's let's talk just briefly about like how that's actually treated. So are they are there lenses? Are there <coughs> what like what what do you prescribe to to these people with learning disabilities? Let's say to to help correct it. Yeah. So again, it's very customized. So I'll try and generally give the concept concept around uh, what we would do in the case of Say, for example, the, the, the child that has this constricted periphery and over-attentiveness. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our therapy is actually with lenses. Okay, And what we do is we'll determine what their near prescriptions needed, not just from a clarity standpoint, because most of them see 20-20, from a spatial standpoint. Yeah. So we can manipulate a little bit of the awareness neurologically to open up that space. Okay, And... You know, safety is going to be a key piece here because if the brain's not ready to open it up, it's not going to happen. It actually gets, you get the reverse reverse effect. But when you open up the periphery, then all of a sudden they have a choice in putting their awareness in that periphery that's opening up neurologically through the lenses or centrally or both. And then we can use vision therapy or training techniques 
to then neuroplastically teach the brain to do what we call central peripheral integration at the same time, right? So, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be um, viewed or, or if it's going to be an audio uh, podcast, but if, yeah, say, for, say for example, there's um, when we meditate, right? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, when, when, when you're in a meditative state, it, your periphery is basically endless, Okay, so what happens? As long as you can get out of your head, you go into this relaxed state because you have all the space around you. Okay, if you see a child that has, again, ADD type tendencies or this collapsed periphery, when you open up that space or when they get it, it's like their whole physiology just goes. Okay, and it goes calm now because they don't have to stay in the sympathetic overdrive. They can choose to look off to the side or they can choose to look at you or both. Right. So basically what you're doing is creating a, a what we call a parasympathetic response, yeah. a relaxed response so that everything, including their body and the physiology, also shift. There's a reason why we call behavioral optometry, because the brain tells the body what to do, depending on what it's perceiving the income, uh, the incoming messages to be. Mm-hmm. OK, so if, if the information coming in is triggering a sympathetic response, my automatic output is going to be, I'm going to speak really, really fast. I'm going to move really fast. I want to move. <laughs> if all of a sudden the input gets reorganized in such a way that it slows down and I can now pay attention to more things, my voice changes, my body posture relaxes and wow. And the big thing that we hear from parents is the confidence goes up. Yeah. And and do you see actually a physical relaxation in the patient? Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's a lot of um there's a lot of procedures that we do. Um well, no, where you see it like really like quickly is with concussion patients. Hmm. Right? Because again, when you when you speak to anybody that's had a concussion that's impacted their memory, it's impacted um, you know, the way that they're seeing, they get headaches daily. Um, their whole body is tight because they don't even, they, they, they always say, I feel like I, I've, I've lost myself. I feel like I'm in a fog. I can't remember anything. I can't think like I did before. Um, and then we can determine, you know, there's, there's this thing called a midline shift that tends to happen with, uh, with concussion. Okay. And what happens, the brain perceives the center of their body here or here and their eyes see it here so there's this delta of a disconnect hmm. so you know they, they feel like they're going to be falling over so what they do is they tense up in order to make sure that they stay in one place when we determine what that amount is and then bring their visual reality and neurological reality together okay all of a sudden it's like everything opens up and usually the first thing that happens is they start crying because uh-huh. they feel like they're back again wow. um and, and you could see it in their movements right they, they, they they're walking very you know, very, very tensely. And then you put the proper lens on, boom, and everything just softens up and boom. And then the emotions start to flow. Um, But yeah, we, we, we definitely see a change in the, in the, in the physiology and the behavior. How many different disorders can be diagnosed and treated through this vision therapy? So we talked about learning disabilities, concussion, like post-traumatic stress, uh, things like that. Yes. Well, so one of the, when we have inefficiencies in the visual system, we may not necessarily know why, right? Now, when we ask the history, then, you know, it, it, it will make more sense 
Um, but because of my training, so I, I have training in neurolinguistic programming and hypnotherapy and what we call timeline therapy. And the neurological response with trauma that's emotional looks identical to the physical trauma that happens with concussion. Hmm. Right. So again, instead of labeling where it came from and what it is, you just say, okay, what's happening with the system and how do we now shift the neurology in order for there to be efficiency either back in the system hmm. or to then, if it's, if it's a developmental issue, which a lot of the times it is with kids with learning issues, how do we re-engage the neurology so that we have proper development that didn't necessarily happen? Um, you know, in terms of what types of disorders, um, you know, anything that's going to impact the, 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 the visual system, right? And, you know, again, you, I got a little creative in a lot of ways um, because in my first five years of practice, I worked in a low vision clinic. You know, so we saw patients that were legally blind, basically, primarily for macular degeneration back then, because we didn't have the technology and the injections that we do now. Mm. Um, you know, once the bleeding starts, they scars down and then you lose central vision. But another one that we saw, I wouldn't say a lot, but quite a bit was retinitis pigmentosa. Okay, and one, so with macular degeneration, you lose central vision. With retinitis pigmentosa, you start losing peripheral vision. And you know, unless you've experienced it, you don't understand what it's like unless you're looking through that patient's eyes. So to me, I thought they were both going to be massively detrimental. They're not. If I were to pick one of the two, I'd rather have the macular degeneration than the retinitis pigmentosa because I didn't realize how important peripheral space was. Mm. And when, you know, you have pretty profound uh, retinitis pigmentosa, maybe you have five degrees of, of central field, Right. But I was sitting in class um, with when I was learning about vision therapy. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, hold on a second here. How much is actually not accessed? Is it because of the changes that are happening in the retina? Or do we have an anxious response that I'm walking around on edge because I don't know if I'm going to fall? You know, so I put my hand up and asked the question. And I said, so... Technically, if there's a sympathetic or a fight or flight response here, could we not do vision training to open up that area? And then, you know, at 100 feet, it's pretty significant, just changing it two, three degrees. Yeah. So I came back, patient had retinitis pigmentosa. I posed the, the question. He's like, yeah, of course, let's do it. We increased his field of view by five degrees just by calming that system down. It changed his life. Wow. Right. And again, wow. you say, what was the visualization? If he can't see with his eyes in that space, okay? But what we taught him is to use his kinesthetic feeling of his hand to know where that space is to tap into the visual space. He was using different methods to then create different ways of tapping into the visual system. And it was profound, right? Because you think five degrees for us, who cares? For him, it was literally life-changing. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, there's so many things that can help you know, and I always say to people, everybody can benefit from vision therapy, right? But the problem is a problem only if it's a problem. But if we're not aware that we have a problem, then we don't know how to necessarily address it. So when we talk about, or if I'm on podcasts like this, yeah. I always refer to the the the, the disorders or the, the difficulties that people have that most people can understand. Yeah, that's wild. Um, you know, with most newer therapies, and I don't know how new vision therapy is, but it seems like they're 
it seems like medicine has a really slow adoption uh, rate when it comes to new ideas. Um, how well received is vision therapy? Is it is it fairly well received by modern standard medicine now, or is it still considered on the fringe? So, in answer to your first question, it's been around for over a hundred years. Okay. Um, you know, is it well received? Um, no. And I, w- if you had have asked me this question ten years ago, fifteen years ago. I'd be on that side saying, okay, this stuff's on the fringe. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And, you know, and the reason is, I'm an end guy, right? So, you know, you know how much we have to learn going through school, okay? And the amount of knowledge is based on protecting the patients, which means we need to diagnose disease first and foremost, and that's the part that takes most of our, our education in school right, to, you know, flip lenses and pick a prescription for the sake of what we do in terms of optometry. It doesn't take very long. The rest of it takes a long time, right? And we, we, we're cramming all this information in four years and then maybe doing a residency or maybe doing an externship program in order to apply those techniques. And that's why we call it being in practice because it never stops, right? So, you know, for all intents and purposes, the way that it's structured and the way the medical system is structured is research-based. It, it, it has to be. Like, we need to have proof that this works um, or what's the problem, in, right? Mm-hmm. The opposite side of that and, you know, what we call alternative therapies is um, a model that uses proof to prove why it works. That's not how we're trained, okay? And now here's something that's case-based that and there's also research on a lot of the things that we do now so that's why it's becoming more um, common knowledge in in the medical community you know but to speak you know with an ophthalmologist on vision is difficult because we're both not trained to talk about the neurology of vision to speak to neurologists about vision we can have a much deeper conversation but they're not trained on what the, the you know the eyeball component is in terms of the the visual processing so it gets a little tricky right and that's why um, I told you, I'm an end guy. Like I love working with every specialty, and I have I built relationships with, you know, any of the of the the specialties within within optometry, ophthalmology, opticianry. But I also have, you know, built relationships in terms of of everything that I do. And then you look for like minded people that think similarly to how I think. And there's a lot more than you'd imagine, right? Um, with regards to why I would do these types of podcasts and, you know, one of my sort of missions to get the word out there so that people at least ask questions. I always say, right, whenever I'm speaking, even on this podcast, don't believe a word I'm going to say in the next hour. Hmm. Don't believe a word I'm going to say, okay? I will say that I'm speaking from experience (laughs) and I will say that if you have questions, please look into it, right? But don't take my word or anybody else's word in terms of what they're saying, um, you know, one of the things, again, I always use a lot of stories because all I could do is explain the impact that it's had on me, right? And if I hear someone saying, hey, my sounds like my dad, he had a learning issue or I have a child or right away it becomes then about you and I'm going to ask the questions to dig deeper so that you can be heard in ways that unfortunately in conventional medicine, we don't have time, hmm. right? A lot of us don't have time to sit there going, okay, let's delve a little bit deeper, right? We want to. If you ask 99% of anybody in, in medicine, if I gave you all the money in the world, would you still do medicine? Guess how many would say yes? 20%, 30%? Well, now it's probably a lot less. 
Um, but they, they may not necessarily say medicine, but then the next question is, what would you do? Hmm. Okay. Most of us would say something that makes an impact. Yeah. Okay. Or something that allows us to grow, right? We love being educated. We love helping people. So what, where the disconnect occurs is that's what we do. Like that's actually what we do. No matter what medical professional you're in, that's actually what we do. But the pressures and, you know, everything that's showing up removes this, sorry, it gives us the opportunity to forget why we got into the profession to begin with. When you remind any professional why they got in and then they're put in an environment to discover their purpose of how it can continue, uh, 110% of them are like, game on, let's do this, right? And I was just fortunate that it fell into my hands um, the way that it did and not necessarily in a, you know, um, you know, in, in... well, it didn't seem like a positive way, but now I look back and it's like, man, thank God it did. We talked about a month ago, I think, Dr. Nick, and I told you the story of my son who uh, survived a mass shooting at uh, the home of, of some friends of ours with some, these are kids that he all grew up with from the time he was a little soccer player in grade school. Um, so this is between his freshman and, and sophomore years in college. Literally had to, to run for his life and was, was so lucky that he wasn't killed. Um, to deal with the uh, post-traumatic stress, he went through a, a vision therapy called EMDR. And, uh, and he actually, he, he said that it actually helped a ton because after the shooting, you know, sometimes many times a day, he would, his mind would go to that moment and it would cause that, what did you call it before? The sympathetic response? Sympathetic, yeah, yeah. the fight or flight. So he just, just massive tightness, you know, you know scared feeling um and then after going through that therapy it was the thought was disconnected from the physical reaction and i'm wondering is there is this related at all to to the vision therapy that you're talking about so the vision therapy that i'm talking about um indirectly yes Mm -hmm. directly no Mm -hmm. um again you're talking so think think of the brain as the gatekeeper for everything yeah okay and one of the things that we always say at the end of our reports is a multi-collaborative approach is best. Okay, so as a vision therapy doc or as a neurovisual optometrist, we're tapping into the neurology through the visual system. Okay, an auditory specialist is tapping in through the auditory system. Speech therapist through speech, right? Physio through the body. Um, occupational therapy through fine motor. Yeah. And any psychology or um, psychiatrist, they tap in through the emotional, okay, to the neurology. So, you know, when there's a massive trauma, um, especially with something that he saw or experienced, the experience gets embedded in the neurology, okay? And I'm going to speak in terms of, of my training with, uh, with timeline therapy a little bit here just so that I can... Um, you know, uh, explain or, or illustrate how this works. If fear, for example, is the emotion that gets tagged down. Okay, so here's an experience that I can't erase out of my, my head that I, I saw or I experienced. And, you know, if I, I thought I was going to die. I mean, it was like, okay, am I going to survive this thing? Here's this, this image and an emotion that stay embedded Okay, and then that stays with the individual. So any anxiousness or any fear that occurs after that, we call it gestalt, but it gets linked in from that event. Okay, 
And if there's a way to then separate what happens physiologically to the body that the emotion created, now you can look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. Okay. And there's different ways and different, um, you know, modalities that, that can do that. Um, with, with my training in timeline therapy, um, basically what we do is, and we call them emotional legacies. Like I'm always looking at, okay, how do we spin this thing so that there's a positive thing to this, right? Because most people, oh my God, I feel so bad. I can't imagine it's such a negative thing and anxious. No, no, it's an emotional legacy. It was there, it was placed there and there's a purpose around it. We just don't know what it is, especially when we're in it. Mm. If you can dissociate away from the event and look at it from an impartial perspective to say, hey, what did I learn from this? Like there has to be a deeper meaning in understanding what I learned from this thing. And if it's guided in such a way that the person sees what the learning is, it gives them a deeper understanding of, wow, I would have never gained that knowledge if it didn't happen that way. Okay. Now, having said that, and you know, with PTSD, it's a little bit of a different animal because when there's trauma, that needs to be done with somebody that's trained to support what that trauma is, period, end of story. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, again, when, when you're in this world of alternative therapies, we all have other people in the professions, right? Psychologists, child psychologists, we refer to each other so that they do what they do best and help to then create the, the freedom neurologically for the individual and that child. Okay, so now with regards to, and I said safety before in terms of the lenses, right? You know, let's say I'm working with your son and we see this peripheral collapse, but there's a program that's running in there going, I, I feel safe like this, don't touch me. If we open up that space too much and the brain's like, whoa, way too much space, man, I'm still running that program, I, that ain't, that's not going to happen. You have to respect what that shows up as because if the results aren't moving in the direction that we expect them to, there's something underlying that needs to get referred. And in his case, it might be the psychologist that would help him or EMDR therapy. Um, I don't want to get too much into EMDR because I don't know it that that well. Mm -hmm. But they have a way of tapping into the memory and where the eyes are positioned to then see how that neurology stores that image. Well, if they dissociate the image away from the emotion, then he's going to feel much better because he's not going to feel like he's stuck. Right. And same thing. Like it's, 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 um, I always tell people like if, if it's something, even if they hear anything in here and whether it's me or someone else that can help, if anybody has questions, I can guide them to say, try it. Right. Um, you know, I hear lots of people say, well, I don't know, this hokey pokey. It might be, but it might not. So go get an evaluation. And, you know, the advantage that we have in the vision therapy side, um, is, it's science, right? So we have what those numbers look like so that it, it can open up the conversation so that we can help people. And then the believability index goes up because the other thing is we have the DR and the accreditation in front of our names too for a reason. And the patients are protected. So it just, it makes it easier to, to open the floodgates and understanding what they may be going through. Yeah. Do you think that kids these days are having to deal with a lot more anxiety than we did as kids? Absolutely. Do you see that? Yeah. How come? Oh man, um, <laughs> where do I start? One would be the amount of information that's available. Okay, yeah. it's just it's it's so much information that needs to get processed um, that they have access to, right? Um, the way that the information is being 
brought into their brains is usually technology. Okay, so, you know, I'm going to date ourselves here, but what do we do as kids, right? <laughs> Go outside, you're in nature, you're in space. Yeah. Climb a tree, right? Yeah. You're in nature, but you're, you're in space. Like you, there's lots and lots of space around you, right? So if my brain feels that my body is in this position all the time, it can't differentiate between is he reading something or is he in a depressed state? Okay, and then I don't want to get into the content, but what is being hit neurologically and mainly unconsciously in the brain may or may not be supportive to them. Yeah. Okay, and then in, is that information real? Is it not real? What, you know, what are we actually learning? There's so many, many things that are happening from that perspective. Now, um, you know, in terms of COVID was, I tell people, was the best thing that happened to me professionally and personally. Okay, because it, it almost forced us to go back a few years, right? Personally, I mean, I was with family all the time. We were out playing soccer. I was biking with the kids. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, professionally, it allowed me to think differently in order to use technology to support the patients that we had because a lot of the vision therapy patients, I didn't want them regressing. So in a matter of two weeks, um, we took everything online and we're one of three clinics that I know of in the world that did it that quickly, right? So, you know, we just pivoted a little bit. Um, you know, so th- there's always, there's this massively positive thing with technology and it's how do you utilize it, okay? The other thing in terms of, of the changes that happen is I saw and I learned a lot, right? Because... You know, we had to go back to work in the first two months. I, when I started seeing the news and what was happening in Italy at the beginning, I thought, oh, my God, mass was going on, double applied. I mean, it was it was intense. Um, you know, and we had safety protocols. I mean, everything was great. As long as my team was safe, I was happy. But then about a year and a half in, I started seeing the emotional impact hmm. of everybody being inside. And, right? And... Um, I implemented a five-step screening process to see if there was a a neuro-visual sympathetic response in all the patients. Because I thought, why should only kids with issues have be assessed? And the results that were coming back were like nuts. I mean, 80% of the time it was a positive response. And then it allowed the patient to explain why they didn't sleep well, what are the stresses. And... It was mind-blowing for me, and nothing was getting discussed at the level that it should have in terms of the emotional health. And then I started seeing the emotional health of children. And, you know, young kids, I mean, my, my passion, you know, is, is, is more towards the, you know, the, the pediatric population or the ones that can't necessarily express themselves. And everything changed when I did the screening on a 12-year-old girl. And... All the testing and the screening was showing positive, 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 positive. And so I said to her, did you sleep well last night? She goes, yeah, I slept well. And I said, what are your stress levels on a scale of 1 to 10? And she didn't respond. She just put her head down. And then the mom was sitting behind me and she started crying. The mom. Wow. And, and I said, are you okay? And she goes, how did you know to ask those questions? And I explained to her. I implemented the screening strategy. And then she turned to her daughter and said, do you mind if I tell him what happened he might be able to help us so the mom proceeded to tell me that she found the note 
that the daughter was going to leave after she ended it. Oh my gosh. After that, I was like, enough. I went home, I said to my wife, okay, we got to think dif- differently in here. We got to get back to old school habits and, you know, get the kids. We traveled. We, we Everything just shifted at that point and perspective kicks in, right? Because you don't want to wait till it's too late. Um, but you knew that by just looking, by examining her eyes and how her eyes were working, you knew something was deeply troubling her. Yeah, there, there was, the, the, again, it was a sympathetic response caused by something. I didn't know what yeah. it was, right? Yeah. But yeah, and I mean, to this wow. day, we still have that screening in, in place and it's not as bad, um, you know, but then again, you look through a child's eyes to see what's happening in the world right now. And I do want to share one story in terms of the youth because it, 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 working with young people is a massive passion of mine and young leaders especially. And um, I was working with this one 22-year-old and this was 2011. And uh, I said, can, can I take you out for dinner? And so he agreed. And, you know, you figure you have, what, half an hour max attention time. It was a three-hour dinner. Hmm. And I just asked him questions. And I said, look, can you just give me some insights? I'm trying to understand your demographic. And I want you to speak as a leader. I don't want you to speak as an individual. And so I asked him what he thought the main blocks were in, in the demographic. And one of the big things he kept saying is stuck energy. He kept using energy as a word. Okay, stuck energy, stuck energy, stuck energy. And then I said, what if I magically disappeared all the blocks? Done. Okay, what would you say is the biggest opportunities for your demographic? And he goes, you mean the energy wouldn't be stuck? I go, anything's possible. He's like, wow. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And I said, well, if you could imagine, what would you say? He couldn't even answer me. But I understood why he couldn't answer me. Because then I said, let's go over the strengths of your demographic. Okay. And he said, nobody's ever asked me this question before. I go, I know. Let's go through this. So I go through a whole list of them. And then we hierarchy the top three. Okay. And I would have thought that technology and social networking would be up there. Okay. It was third. The second one was energy and a lot of it. He goes, it's, it's, it's actually a, main, a massive strength of ours. And I said, what's number one? So he told me what number one is. And to this day, if you ask anybody under 30, they'll agree with you. Okay. And again, beats working. So it fits well with the podcast. Mm-hmm. To be a part of a movement against the status quo to make an impact in the world. Wow. Yeah. Okay, now the thing is, we don't know what that is yet, right? So when people say to me, all these industries are collapsing, everything's changing, I say, good, yes. Okay, because it's not that it's collapsing, it's just changing. And if we can somehow get the youth, okay, and their amazing amount of energy to see things with purpose, their purpose based on what they're unique in, Man, the world's their oyster in the way now that that they're, again, I'm going to switch it, right? Because we can talk about how bad technology is and, you know, TikTok and all these other things. But I'm like, hold on a second here. Let's not label it. If they have all this experience now and we move them in the direction of what's possible, okay? Maybe that knowledge needed to happen the way that it did and they they had to go through the depressed states and they had to go through everything, right? Because now that's their story. Hmm. We don't know that. Right. But time and time again, when I work with young people, when we unlock them to see what their potential is, it's amazing what they can create. So, yeah, again, I hope I'm answering the question because I'm a little bit older. You think global warming, you think, I mean, there's an issue that the current leaders 
don't appear to be too concerned about solving at this point. I mean, it, it's it, but I look at that generation and my kids are, you know, 19 and 26 years old. And I absolutely believe that their generation will be able to do things that that our generation hasn't. Yeah. It, look, let me okay, it's, a, it's a good way for me to illustrate central peripheral integration on, in real life. OK. If we let's say we're going to have a conversation, a podcast on global warming right now. Okay, and we could talk about the details of what might be happening, what's not happening, and who's looking at it, who's not looking at it, the carbon emissions, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. We're looking here. Okay, it's a central view of it. If we take a step back and go, hold on, let's look at a much wider view of where global warming sits. Okay, and we say, all right, transportation is collapsing as, as an industry. Okay, electric cars are coming in now, right, which means emissions are decreasing. So, all of a sudden now, here's this new segment of, of travel. There's a new segment of medicine. There's a new segment of, you know, transportations here. Education is another one. If we start looking at what are the possibilities now, and there's, a, um, I don't know if, if you're aware of Peter Diamantis, but he has this um, company called Abundance 360. Hmm. Okay. And it's global leaders that are making like game-changing game-changing ideas and putting what he calls these moonshots into play, right? So imagine that you have enough entrepreneurs or leaders or youth that come up with these moonshots. It's crazy ideas. And they say, you know what? I'm going to dream a little bit, right? So for me, my dream and still is my my child's going to walk. He's going to see, he's going to hear, he's going to talk, he's going to walk. It was a dream. How did I know it was possible? I had no clue. Right? Did I know the medical team that I know now? Do I know the med? No clue. But it was my moonshot, still is, and it's in my awareness. It's in my space. It's in my brain. So when the opportunities show up, they're there for me to grab them. Okay? If now we go peripherally and we get enough people to think moonshot ideas and, and forget about the youth, because if I just say that demographic again, I'm, I'm looking too constricted. How about we think about the inner child in all of us too? And put that into the mix so that we're all, you know, not working, but running with passion and moonshot ideas. This environment is perfect for it right now because you have a choice. It's not like we can go back to conventional jobs and say, okay, I'll dump this one and go here. (laughs) Right? Right? It's not like food prices aren't going up. You know, everybody's, oh my God, how are kids going to afford the housing? Don't worry about that. I think they're going to be able to afford buildings. Forget about houses if they tap into what their moonshots are or what they were um, given, given as a gift in terms of what their purpose is. Am I making sense? So if we go peripheral, it may not necessarily be something we can grasp now, but at least we can have a vision of what we all deem is a vision of the future possibility. Okay. And yeah, I'm a crazy nutbag that thinks positively, but why not? It's like, if we can look at the possibilities and yes, I have a story to prove it. If there's enough people that are creating these moonshots being led by other leaders in their way, look what's possible, right? And now all of a sudden, is global warming a thing? I don't know. Is there a solution to support the global masses because now everybody's discovered something that's totally different? 100%, right? Um, oh my God, I can go on and on on this one, but... You know, there's there's a um, a guy I know that's just incredible, 
that you know his moonshot is to is to provide energy clean energy to the world mm-hmm. like that's his moonshot and he'll do it yeah i know he'll, the guy's unbelievable but you know you, you talk to people like that and it's inspiring and when they're actually doing it it's like wow if he can do it and he came up with a moonshot what can i do if i can do it how can i help someone else do it right that's what's going to create the change I mean, it's happening already, but it, that's that's what's going to create the change. And then we're not stuck in the central, you know, what about this problem? What about this problem? What about this problem? Oh, there's a little opportunity, but there's too many other problems. Yeah. You know, one more thing that I need to add and see if this resonates. Our brains are trained to, to focus on fear. Right. Trained. Okay. It's, it's, in, it's, it's a safety. Again, it's a survival mechanism. And anything that is positive, if there's fear attached to it, will automatically go towards the fear. Train that way, right? So if we're in a world of fear, okay, then what's the option now to switch it to the other side? Less fear initially, yeah. okay? And again, you, you don't let the fear drive you, right? Or Sorry, it doesn't run your life. You let it drive you so that you can start seeing things from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah so true. I mean, I spent 35 years in TV news and, you know, you turn on the news and, you know, I, I fought these battles, you know, trying to, to to get irrelevant crime stories out of the newscasts. And it was always a, a losing battle. And, uh, you know, I can't watch the news now because it's just too much irrelevant, irrelevant crime news. You know, it's driven by fear, the old, the old model. But um, as we start to wrap things up, Dr. Nick, I'd love to come back to, I'm sure there's a parent or a person listening who may have a child or a family member with a learning disability or or uh, another one of these challenges um, you know give give them some advice on what steps they should try to take to start to to go down this path and I'm, I'm even thinking of myself I, I I have never been able to read very well I mean uh, I'm I'm always listening to radio and books on tape and and all that kind of stuff but as for for my whole life reading has been an enormous struggle and it just makes me wonder um you know if if i might be able to benefit from from vision therapy yeah it's it's um like i said i think everybody can benefit from at least the evaluation Hmm. in terms of understanding self right uh in the u.s um it's um so the college of vision development they just changed the name because we had our our yearly meeting uh last week and I, I don't know what it is, but the, the, the website is covd.org. Okay. Okay. And then there's a list of docs, like neurovisual docs all across the U.S. And then take a look and see who's close by. Um, and then take your child or you go get a neurovisual or a vision therapy evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll at least start the process to see how much of an impact is the visual system on, on the reading issues or concussions. Okay. That's a big one. Okay, if you have concussion symptoms, headaches, um, uh, especially with up close reading, um, you know, imbalance, uh, feel like you're in a fog, uh, poor memory, uh, startle reflex, you know, anxious all the time, um, definitely, definitely book an appointment. In Canada, it's visiontherapycanada.com um, is, is our big organization here. And again, there's both sites have a list of, of docs. Um, I don't know if you're going to put my information on the podcast. You'd be you'd yep, more than happy to. Will. If anybody has any questions, they can email uh, or call, and then we can guide them specifically with where they need to go. 
Um, if it's any other questions that are anything pertaining to the you know little bits that I that we said in the podcast, I'd be happy to answer them too. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's been life changing for me. Uh, and and on that note, like I, not that I didn't believe it. It's just you know I'm the type going, eh, does this really work? Uh, I did it personally. I had a vision therapy evaluation. And then maybe we'll close with this because it opened up with the story, right? And I was the only person in my family that had a nearsighted prescription. And again, I'm reading a lot, looking up close all the time in terms of, of, of confidence. Everything was very, very tight. So I had a minus three, minus three and a half prescription. But I didn't understand that I wasn't accessing my periphery. So in sports, I played really, really, really well. And I could hit really, really, really hard in football and rugby. Because all I could see was your chest. When my periphery opened up in vision therapy, I was like, is this how I'm supposed to be seeing? So that's what the, the coach meant by look at the quarterback's eyes with your peripheral while you're looking at the defensive back. I mean, at the receiver. I mean, it was just, it was a whole new world for me. And, you know, all these things started pouring in in terms of, wow, this is what it looks like to have enhanced athletics and having a visual system that, that, that supports, right? Mm-hmm. So having gone through vision therapy myself and opening up my periphery was life-changing. My son continues to go through vision therapy and it's life-changing for him and indirectly for the whole family watching um, the successes that he's going through and watching how much he's, um, he's excelling you know, in school and life and everything that he does. Yeah. You know, it's a bit of a miracle. So hopefully that helps. And then, um, like I said, I'm happy to answer any questions anybody might have. I want to I want to finish on one other thing. I think the more that I've learned about you and your story and the older that I get, the more I realize that the goal of life is not to avoid uh, anything, tragedy, challenges. Uh, I, I think we have this idea that to, to live a good life is to not ever have to face bad stuff. And what I've what I've seen through your story is that you see the bad stuff as as the most important things that have shaped you into who you are, right? Yeah, I mean, the quote-unquote quote quote bad stuff. I'm not going to call it bad stuff. It, but it, challenges, right? I'm sure you've heard of the hero's journey. Yeah. Right? So, you know, we all are going through the hero's journey. Okay? We're all going to get tested. It's part of being a human being. Okay? If somebody says they haven't been tested, either it hasn't happened yet or they're lying. So, <laughs> it's It's inevitable. Okay, and what happens through the hero's journey is if we embrace what it is that we're going through, right? Know that there's going to be a villain involved. It's all part of the process, but understand that we're going to, if you choose to go through it, you come out different than you went in, which is where the gift is. Okay, and what what comes to me is uh, I have a lot of Orthodox Jewish friends, and. It's amazing speaking to some of the rabbis because they speak in metaphor, right? They speak in, in story format. And he used a metaphor one time to explain exactly this. Okay. And it was around chiseling or getting chiseled. And what he said is, you know, there, there's there, the way to get through to the learning. You have to imagine that you're in a rock, a crack of a rock that's so tight and so dark. Okay. That you start chiseling your way through this rock. You're alone, it's dark, scary, and you keep chiseling, and you keep chiseling, and you keep chiseling, 
in hopes that you're going to get to the other side. You're just not sure and you wonder, oh my God, how much of this can I handle? It's just at the moment that you're about to give up that you throw that last chisel in and boom, there's the light. And on the other side is where the gift is. Right? So he said, embrace the chiseling, embrace the opportunity of what's on the other side as you're going through the process. And again, this is another version of him explaining the hero's journey. Yeah. Okay? And it helps a lot when you're with the other people that other people that can um, not necessarily support it, but understand what it is that you're going through. Okay, one final question I have to ask. What's the most important thing you've learned as a doctor and as a dad and husband? <sighs> What's the most important thing I've learned? Um, hmm. Okay, as a doctor, um, to be able to... Um, well, for me to grow personally, but then to be able to see other people's from like an understanding from their point of view, you know, as a dad and a husband and yeah, I'll, I'll, what comes to mind is I, I spent some time in Greece in, in a monastery and um, three days. Okay, it was me, my father-in-law, a friend of mine, his father-in-law and another friend and three of us spoke Greek, my father-in-law is Brazilian, and my, and my friend's father-in-law is Mexican, so they weren't speaking the language. And at one point, one of the monks said, if you want to learn about the monastery, so it's only men, and you do nothing but just be <laughs> for three days. And he said, if you want to learn more about the monastery, just step off to the side. I said, okay, we're not doing anything. So the history of the monastery, and, and you know, amazing, when it, how it got built, when you know, it got looted, the pirates... 45 minutes and he stops at one point just stopped and he looked around to all of us and he said never worship your wife and I'm in shock right and you know he said it about five times and I'm thinking okay a monk's gonna give me marriage advice like really <laughs> and he even said he goes something says we need to talk about the mystery of marriage and so after the fifth time, he said, never worship your children. Five times again, I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, marriage advice and now children advice from a monk that's never been married, doesn't have kids. <laughs> so then finally said, the only thing you're going to worship is God. And in my mind, I thought, oh boy, here we go. Here's a religious dissertation. And then he said, let me put it differently. You have a God-given purpose that's been given to you. Should you not express that purpose no woman, no wife, no child will ever follow you. Wow. So the biggest learning for me was to continue to follow in the path of what my purpose is in this hero's journey of where it came from, which was to be tested. And now, like I said, I don't feel like I'm working anymore because it's purposeful, it's meaningful, it's something that was ingrained inside of me that I think was hardwired that's starting to get expressed now. So... Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Dr. Nick, this has been so fun and informative. And, and I know that, that parents and, and others who are listening to this are going to be so inspired that the, there are other ways of seeing some of these disorders and there are treatments that none of us have, have heard of before. Um, so I just want to say thank you for following your your passion and your life's calling, um, and we are all better for it. Thank, well, thank you. you so much. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for the opportunity, and I hope this fun, amazing energy gets transferred yeah. to the world, and then uh, we can all do this together. 
I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to show producer and web editor Tamar Medford. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from our Contributors Corner and Sidekick Sessions. Join us next week for another episode of Beats Working, where we are winning the game of work.